Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What does Geronimo say when he jumps off a cliff? Me! I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from movie star Greta Gerwig that'll help break the ice. And believe it or not, that was one of the best jokes we've heard all year, (laughs) which is why we chose it to kick off this, our annual Best of Dinner Party Download episode. Don't worry, it gets better. Coming up, you will hear some of our favorite moments of 2014 featuring Angelica Houston, Jeffrey Tambor, and etiquette advice from Mel Brooks, because of course. Plus, musician Jesse Ware DJs your dinner party. We blast off with science guy Bill Nye. Writer Marlon James evokes the spirit of Bob Marley. And it rains grilled cheese. Crazy, but first, small talk. This is the part of the show where journalists tell us about odd news items they'll be talking about at parties. Here's a mashup of our favorites, starting with this one from Fast Company Magazine's Rehan Harmansi. I'm going to be talking about a $2 million dog. Really? Is this like a new TV show, like Million Dollar Man? Or... <laughs> Is it half robot? It's a $2 million actual dog. What makes it worth $2 million? Well, it's a Tibetan Mastiff that was just sold at a pet expo in China. In China, they're considered a national pet. I saw a quote that these dogs have lion's blood, which I'm assuming is not a scientific <laughs> yeah. thing. I mean, they they may actually feed this I... thing lions because <laughs> it probably gets to eat whatever it wants. Yeah. <laughs> What story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? A comedy club in Spain has decided to charge per laugh, charge its audience per every chuckle and guffaw and smile. The uh, Swiss Society for the Public Good is holding a contest to rewrite the uh, national anthem of Switzerland. The L.A. City Council is paying $26 million to settle this legal case with the L.A. sanitation workers. It was trying to ban them from napping. I'm going to be talking about the advent of a fashion movement called toddler core. I'm going to be talking about the fact that science seems to have determined that we've arrived at peak beard. I'm going to be talking about a troubling American clown shortage. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Taylor Swift actually released eight seconds of white noise, and it topped the Canadian iTunes chart. Imagine this. You're a researcher at the National Gallery in Hungary. You're watching a movie from 10 years ago called Stuart Little, and then you spot a painting in the back of Stuart Little's living room (laughs) that's been missing for 90 years from Hungary. There's a new theory that the rocks at Stonehenge have acoustic properties. So it might be an instrument? Have they tried to play it? That was sort of what I was thinking. It's like, theoretically, you can do this, and maybe you can do it. Can't they go there and play them? Bang on the rocks. Yeah. Yeah. We have to get, like, John Bonham's son (laughs) and some of the best drummers in the world assembled. That probably wouldn't be hard to do. Just get Brian Eno over there. If Brian Eno played Stonehenge, I think he would just disappear into the sky. (laughs) Maybe this was its purpose all along. I think we've cracked it. And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our semi-world-famous history lesson with booze. And our favorite historical tale of the year is about one of our favorite games ever. Here's Michelle Philippi with the story. In the early 40s, New York was apparently a really safe place. Because what city officials feared most was pinball. 
Well, that's probably an overstatement, but officials did consider pinball a shady game of chance. They lumped it in with other noisy gizmos you dropped coins into, like slot machines. Cops took to raiding pinball parlors, and in January 1942, Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia straight up banned them. Soon, other big cities did too. Not that you couldn't still get a pinball fix. Even cities with bans let you have a machine in your own home. And some let you install machines in your business, too, if they gave out an occasional free ball. But in New York, pinball remained a sort of shadowy underground craze. That is, until May 1976. That's when a trade group called the Music and Amusement Association went to city council to get the ban overturned. To do it, they had to prove pinball wasn't a game of chance. So they called in a ringer, Roger Sharp. Sharp had written about the game in GQ and the New York Times, and he was also a killer pinball player. If he could call a pinball shot in advance and then make it, clearly, this was a game of skill. So a pinball machine was set up in a Manhattan courtroom. Sharp announced he'd make a shot straight up the middle lane. And he did it, scoring the political equivalent of multi-ball. The council overturned the ban on the spot, arguably ushering in one of the golden ages of pinball. By the way, Sharp later said that historic shot was pure luck. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to serve along with it. I am at the Fifth Estate, a bar in Brooklyn that's known for its pinball, and I'm joined by its owner, Peter Letterman. My pleasure. Why did you decide to put pinball in your bar? Because it is a more nostalgic and vintage way of bringing in some fun games and entertainment, and little I know how competitive our uh, customers would eventually become with it. Pretty tense around the pinball machines here? Things get very heated. Last night, actually, someone stormed out of the bar. So was that around the Star Trek machine or the Elvira machine? Actually, it was around the Star Trek machine and the Lord of the Rings machine. So you should never mix sci-fi nerds, pinball, and alcohol. That's a really toxic combination. Really dangerous combination. <laughs> All right. You heard the history. What drink did it inspire you to make? Well, I wanted to have some type of pinball in the drink. So I started out by scooping out melon balls of honeydew. They're exactly pinball size. I actually took the time to try to find the exact right melon scooper. <laughs> and they are hanging out in some sort of liquid? They're hanging out in absinthe because it was also, you know, under its own prohibition and scrutiny in the United States until recently, actually. What are you going to do next? I'm actually going to take those balls out of the absinthe, and I'm going to roll them in sugar so they will sparkle and glitter just like a chrome pinball. It kind of looks like a, like a donut hole. It looks a lot like a donut hole. And then I'm going to, in a separate glass, I like to use a wide mouth champagne flute. I'm going to put a small amount of uh, limoncello. That's Limoncello is an, an Italian liqueur with kind of a lemon edge. Yeah, and I want something a little sour to sort of represent the sourness of something being banned for so long. <laughs> then I top that off with a nice Prosecco. All right, well, let's drop the ball in there. And it, and it fizzes up a little bit. I'm going to use my hand, God's flippers. That's a great term for your hand. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a sip of the drink. When I take a sip, the melon ball kind of bumps my lips. And then at the end, you can finally eat the ball. You know, it can go down the, the hole. <laughs> 
And Rico, I did a little research. The most famous pinball machine ever. Okay. The Adams Family game based on the 1991 movie. Kind of odd. Wow. Yeah. So goths play pinball. <laughs> well, there is that Elvira machine. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Folks, goth or not, you can find any of our drink recipes. Use God's flippers to type this into a web browser, dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made small talk, had a drink. Now this party needs some music. Yes, and some great musicians made us dinner party playlists last year. Perfume Genius, Sylvanesso, Rivers Cuomo from Weezer, many more. Of course. When we asked listeners to pick a favorite, they made an excellent choice. UK pop star Jessie Ware. Her debut album was nominated for the prestigious Mercury Prize. This year's follow-up, Tough Love, cracked Britain's top ten. Here's Jessie the DJ for you. Hello, I'm Jessie Ware, and I've been asked to make a dinner party playlist. I recently got married and my husband and I had this whole thing of having a playlist for our dinner music. This was very, very important to us. So I think I'm still in that like romantic zone. So I'm going to stay with that with this dinner party. I would start with Rye Open. I'm a fool for the shake in your thumbs. I'm a fool for the sound in your the way that it comes in, it kind of feels almost like it's been with you forever. So it's not like a big shock. And I think for dinner party music, you don't want it to interrupt too much. I want to make this play. Oh, I know you're faded. Mm, stay. Don't close your hands. We put it on when people were having cocktails just after we got married. It's got this beautiful energy about it where it felt optimistic, it felt happy. It's um, it's warm, and I want my dinner party to be happy in a warm place. I'd like to think my playlist is going to be, you know, a good two hours. So this would probably come later in the dinner party. People have had a few drinks, maybe we're on to, like, a whiskey hour. Um, I'd choose Marvin Gaye, I Want You. Everyone knows sexual healing, everyone knows, you know, what's going on and all these songs. But this song, it's the most moody, hypnotic, just the way that he kind of coos in it. There's an amazing YouTube video of him doing it in rehearsals where I think he's pretty stoned in it and he's lying down and it's just drowsy and I feel like it's perfect dinner party music because it's it's not like he's right in your ear hole, you know what I mean? It's not desperate, it's honest. And those are the best songs. The longing songs are the best. The bittersweet songs are the best. So I'm gonna go for a newer song because I actually think it would work very well with the Marvin and the Rye song. It's a Usher, Good Kisser. I done been around the world, I done kissed a lot of girls, so I'm guessing that it's true. <laughs> Make me holler and I bet a million dollars, don't nobody kiss it like you. <laughs> I mean, it's such a tune. And actually, it sounds like a Marvin Gaye song. And it's got that mm, duh, mm, mm. I ain't one at your car fever. I'm staring at your barrel. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. 
I love how Usher is using his voice, this high register. This is just sassy, like, this is so cool. It makes you kind of want to shimmy into somebody and, like, go and, like, grab that person that you've wanted to flirt with all night that maybe you've, you know, been eyeing over the dinner table. It's so good, man. So good. Bang, bang, bang. Don't nobody kiss it like you. Don't nobody kiss it like you. I would never play a song of mine at my own dinner party. I'm just putting that out there. But because you've asked, I shall not resist. There's a tune I did on my new record called Kind of Sometimes Maybe. Do I get lonely at all? No, cause Jamie and Johnny and Jack keep me warm. This wasn't my fault. I did it with Miguel. Now, Miguel is the king of sex music, I think, at the moment. And he's like, you're a really confident woman and you never show this in your songwriting. I want people to see how confident you are. And I was like, oh God, I, I don't want to. I like to be the one that's longing for somebody. He was like, no, you need to be sassy in this. So this song is sexy. Miguel is whispering in my ear, being like, let me come over. I just want to talk to you. And I can't believe we got away with it. It's just fun. A dinner party soundtrack from Jessie Ware. Her latest album is called Tough Love. All right, we're going to take a break, but when we return in a minute, more of our favorite moments of 2014 with actor Jeffrey Tambor and sandwiches that fall from the sky. Hallelujah. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano, and even though it's now officially 2015, we're in the midst of our best of 2014 episode because we figured before we could decide what the best stuff of the year was, we should let the year actually, you know, end. Yeah. Right? You never know what might happen in those last few days. Of course not. Coming up, some great moments with Angelica Houston, Mel Brooks, and more. But first, an interview our listeners voted one of their favorites of the year. It's with actor Jeffrey Tambor. That's right. He's best known for playing Hank on the landmark sitcom The Larry Sanders Show. Now he's up for a Golden Globe Award for his starring role in the Amazon Prime series Transparent. He plays Mort who comes out to his family as the transgendered Mara. I welcomed him to our studios like this. It's an honor. Thank you. I love radio. So do we. So this is going to be perfect. No, I do. I, at Wayne State University, I just remembered I used to do radio plays. I'm just recalling that because I just took off my shoes and put my feet up. And I went, oh, yeah, that's what you can do on radio. You did just put your feet up. You're making yourself comfortable. Yeah. You did radio plays in uh, in, in college? Oh, yeah. And and I remember because they, I learned to how, to how you put the script down noiselessly on the floor. That's funny because I can hear you right now sort of sliding around. So you apparently yes. forgot that part. Yes. <laughs> Those are actually my teeth. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about this wonderful show that you are a have part you of it? right now. I have. Oh, great. You, of course, are not transgendered, but you show so much obvious sympathy for this character. What is your emotional connection to Mara, do you think? Wow. That's a great question. Um, the fact that she's courageous. She's 70. She has an arthritic left knee. <laughs> She has uh, reading glasses. I guess what I'm saying is that she's very human, 
and I love the break she's making for her authenticity. I will be very honest with you. The degree of difficulty also uh, uh, led me because I went, this is not going to be one, two, three kick. And yeah. I like that in life. Uh, but also, it's just, I'm, look, I did Arrested Development and the Larry Sin- Sanders show, or as my mother used to say, the Hank Kingsley show. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I thought it was, you know, I was going to sit down and uh, read in a, in a library the, the great works of Dickens. But Like you were going to retire like you'd done enough, basically? Yeah, well, no. But, I mean, these roles don't come along. And this thing, tap, 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 Jill Soloway wants you. And I, I, I read it within 15 minutes. I was on the way to my hotel in um, Santa Monica, California. And by the time I got to the hotel, I, I was calling my agent saying, I'm in. And they said, well, don't you want to meet? And I said, I'm in. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. I'm just trying. Can you just help me out here? Are you, are you saying that you're going to start dressing up like a lady all the time? <laughs> all my life, my whole life, I've been dressing up like a man. What was on your mind when you and the filmmakers actually had to portray a person coming out as transgender? Like, what did you feel you wanted to bring to it? Well, I I say, and perhaps too glibly, and I don't mean it to sound that way, but my politics, Jeffrey Tambor's politics, are in Mora and in the creation of Mora and making her as human as I can make her and as uh, well portrayed as I can. Not for the reviews, but... um, because of this community that needs wonderful light shown on it, as well as being, I, I think the pith of this show is really about uh, what secrets can do in the family. And it answers the question, if I change, will you still love me? Well, there's a, actually, I want to ask you about this. There's a moment in the third episode, I think it is, when your character has made her first transgendered friend. And this mm-hmm. friend tells you basically to expect your family to abandon you after you come mm-hmm. out. Is that what typically yeah. happens? I would imagine that is not rare. Transgender people and people who make decisions like this are otherized in our society. And uh, people are ignorant, squeamish, and phobic. How did you prepare for this role? I mean, uh, did you speak with the people from that community? I'm imagining you did. Well, there were three consultants from the transgender community. They would come to my um, hotel and they once came and and we went out on our first field trip. We went out dancing to a a club in North Hollywood. A transgender club? Yes. And we went dancing and I remember walking through the hotel and I thought I was going to uh, die, uh, basically. Why? I was so scared because I was way out of my element. I thought somebody was going to say something or do something. Were you in costume when you did that? Were you? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I didn't tell you the whole. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was in wig and I was totally on farm. And I remember there was a, uh, we couldn't get our car there. They couldn't find our car. And we, I stood there forever at the valet station. Oh, uh, th- these were important things to me. I went shopping as more. And then I remember sitting outside next to, you know, civilians. And I was just scared. And I just went, do not ever forget this moment. How did others react to you? Nobody. Uh, there was one person who walked by me at the market and sort of smiled and shook their head, which I thought was very odd. Do you think they recognized you? It was like, what's going on with Well, I don't know. My daughter came, my seven-year-old daughter came to the uh, studio uh, on the day that daddy was going to get a mani-pedi. And I thought was a singular a father moment for me <laughs> in my life. Uh, and I, I prepped her at home by saying, okay, now, uh, mm, uh, 
hmm, uh, and showing pictures of er, uh, I couldn't find the words. And finally she goes, Daddy, Daddy, I get it. Your character is more comfortable being a woman. So you raised some sensitive children. No, no. And let me correct you. And I, I like what you said. I have children, and children have not learned hatred. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. Please. And the answer is 16. <laughs> when did I lose my hair? Um, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Uh, can you, I, I know it's a bother, but I have my phone up. Can you do a, a hey now into the phone? <laughs> I'm not kidding. For those who don't know, that's the catchphrase of Hank from the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. Hey now. But Henry Winkler told me a very interesting thing. And he, and he said, you know, it's their first time. It's your 500th thousandth time or something like that. And he's right. Of course. So do you do it for them? Of course not. <laughs> no, I do. I do. I, I'm, I'm nice to a fault. Hey, now. Oh, I'm getting chills. Me too. Question number two. Yeah. Tell us something we don't know. Let's see. What kind? I'll tell you one thing. My mother, God bless her, there used to be a drug called Milltown. It's a tranquilizer. My mother gave me half a Milltown at my bar mitzvah because <laughs> I said I was nervous. She goes, here, take this. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I was high during my bar mitzvah. <laughs> you kind of, you did see God. You became a child of God. I didn't. And sort of, I was the only bar mitzvah boy who snapped his fingers in rhythm to the Torah. <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor, star of the Amazon Prime web series Transparent, is up for a Golden Globe Award for the role. And he's amazing in it. But Rico, yeah. I just want to talk for a second about Milltown. All right. What kind of name for a drug is Milltown? <laughs> I know. I guess Lumberville was taken. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think whoever named that took too many mill times. <laughs> and now, time to eavesdrop. This is the part of the show where we listen in on a well-told story, and our favorite this year came from Jamaican writer Marlon James. His novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, follows fictional characters who get involved in a real historical event, the attempted shooting of reggae star Bob Marley in 1976. Here's an excerpt. Hi, my name is Marlon James, and my most recent novel is A Brief History of Seven Killings. There's a whole universe of characters who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And one of those characters is Nina Burgess. Before the shooting, she's unemployed and she's stalking Marley outside his gate, hoping to beg him to help her. She's now remembering the first time she met him. Danny was from Brooklyn, a blonde-haired man who came down to the research for his degree in agricultural science. Who knew that the one thing Jamaica created that was the envy of science was a cow? Anyway... We were seeing each other. Danny would listen to really weird music, just noise, the Eagles and the Rolling Stones, and too many black people who should just stop acting white. But at night, he would play a song. We broke up almost four years ago, but every time I look out the window, I sing two lines over and over. Oh, I do. Funny, 
It is because of Danny that I met him. Some party that the record label had all the way up in the hills. Somebody whom I never thought I would meet. Even my mother liked his last single, though my father despised him. He was shorter than I expected, and me, him, and his manager were the only black people that were not asking if we would like our drinks freshened up. Standing there, he was like a black lion, and he was looking straight at me. He said, How the sexy daughter just come upon the man so? Fifteen years of schooling on how to talk proper, and that is still the sweetest thing I've ever heard come out of a man's mouth. I didn't see him again until long after Danny went back, and I followed my sister Kimmy to a party at his house. He didn't forget me. You is Kimmy's sister, he said. Is where you was hiding. Or you was like sleeping beauty, eh? Waiting for the man to wake you up. The whole time, I am splitting two. The part of me that I like to shut off after morning coffee said, Yes, reason would be my sexy brethren. The other part, going, What do you think you're doing with this lice-infested rasta? Kimmy left after a while. I stayed. I was watching him, me, and the moon when he went out to the veranda, naked like some night spirit, with a knife to peel an apple. Only two people know that Midnight Ravers is about me. So I'm across the road, waiting at the bus stop, but so far, I've let two pass, then a third. He hasn't come through the front door, not once, not for me to run across the road that instant and shout, remember me? Long time to see. I need your help. Marlon James, reading from his novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, the New York Times named it among the best books of the year, and we agree. You're listening to the Dinner Party Downloads Best of 2014 show from American Public Media. And now, the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. And we covered a lot of interesting food stories this year. We did $4 toast, donut cannoli hybrids, this stuff called Soylent, which Mm. some people now eat instead of food. More of a brown paste story than a food story. (laughs) True. But our favorite story of the year was about Joffle Shoots. Uh, Now, the idea here is you PayPal a few bucks to the Joffle Shoots guys. They tell you a time and a place to stand. And when you arrive, they parachute a sandwich into your outstretched hands. (laughs) When I caught up with Adam Grant, one of the Australians behind the concept, I asked him the obvious question. When you came up with this idea, were you high? Um, There was a lot of beer. I'll say that. Do you have a background in cooking or anything? Or is this just kind of a fun stunt. I mean, I've always described Jaffel Shoots as a parachute company rather than a sandwich company. We, we put a lot of thought into the sandwiches, but we put more thought into the parachutes because at the end of the day, the parachutes can't fail, the sandwiches kind of can. So there are two parts of this project, 
the Joffle and the shoots. And for an American, the word Joffle is really bizarre. So can you explain what a Joffle is? So a Joffle is, it's basically a grilled cheese, um, but sealed around the edges and kind of separated through the middle to cut it into a triangle. I don't think it's a uniquely Australian thing, but it's definitely something kind of ingrained in Australian culture. The word Joffle, is that unique? The Joffle refers to the Joffle iron, which is the traditional way of cooking the sandwich, which is a huge metal clamp that you would fit the sandwich into and then... Um, hold over a campfire, I suppose. Um, and then in the 70s, Breville came along and created this electronic jaffle maker that we use today. Is the jaffle almost an ideal food for this sort of delivery system? Because with the edges sealed, the things can't slide out of it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so you can't really do a piece. I mean, you could do a pizza slice, but um, logistically it would be a little bit more difficult. A hot dog would be a disaster. Tell me about how many jaffle shoot events you've had, and it works like a pop-up, correct? Uh, we've been around for about 14 months now. Um, I've kind of lost count, but I imagine we've done probably around 16, 17, 18 um, drops um, of different sizes. Some of those are up to 150 jaffle shoots. Some of those are just one, but quite a few. And yeah, we call it pop-up float down. So we never operate in the same space twice. Um, we'll pop up in a new spot, put down an X, drop sandwiches via parachute for an hour or so, and then disappear into the night. Now, is that because this probably isn't legal, right? You know, I've never really looked into it, kind of out of fear of what I might discover. Have you encountered any negative critiques of, of the Joffle shoot? Very few, actually. I think um, we put a lot of thought into how we describe what it is that we do, and we certainly don't take it seriously, and we don't ever want anyone to think that we're taking it seriously it's all in good fun. So there's the joffle, which is the sandwich, and there's the shoot. This is like a, a circle the size of a manhole of orange plastic with a hole in the middle. Can you ex explain what I'm looking at here? It's just a garbage bag that we've cut into a circular shape. We got these designs off uh, kind of hobbyist websites set up by um, ex-military like old men that make bottle rockets in their spare time. <laughs> we kind of like took their designs that are quite complex and simplified them and worked out how we could do them um, using materials that you find at a hardware store. This one, it's all it's quite crinkled because we've recycled it a few times. Um, we'll put a coat hanger or something downstairs and ask people to recycle their parachutes. There's tape on each... Is that just holding it together, this red tape on the edges? Yeah, yeah. So the string would go in here. It looks like fishing line. Yeah, kind of fishing line. It's not as good as fishing line. It's quite thick. So we just like line that up along the edge like that and stick it down with tape. And that's it. Have you ever thought about edible shoots I was thinking made of fruit roll-ups or something like that like fruit leather that is a bad idea but I mean it's the kind of bad idea that might work he who lives in glass houses should not throw stones even if they have parachutes right. I'm sorry I didn't mean to be rude all right so can you make me a sandwich and then throw it off a roof to me sure I've got some stuff in the fridge so through the magic of radio you've built our sandwiches and they're about to be Joffled? Yeah, that's right. So they're just uh, regular sandwiches, but buttered on the outside. That's to stop it from sticking and to make it look beautiful, I think. So let's hear the, the joffle sound. All that fat and cheese. It's going to be so good. All right, well, let's go do it. So now I'm outside waiting for Adam to uh, <laughs> drop a grilled cheese on me with a little parachute. <laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, I missed it. There it is. All right. <laughs> My joffle has arrived. I'm going to uh, wait for Adam to join me, and then we'll eat our joffles. You want to grab one and, and join me in having a sure. bite here? How do you... Oh, oh, I dropped my shoot. <laughs> shoot down. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Sorry about that. All right, here we go. About to eat my jawful. How do you, cheers? Is, that's what you say in Australia, yeah, right? We can do that. Cheers. Cheers. So a little soggy, but good. I, it was so much fun getting to it. It almost replicates like chasing down a wild animal on the savanna and tackling it and then finally getting to bite into it, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's key to jaffle shoot success. Have you ever had any, ne- never any jaffle shoot hostility from passers-by? Not that I've ever seen. We did hit a police car once, and they did stop, and they did get out of the car, and they looked up, and they saw what was happening, and then I guess they're a bigger fish to find on a Friday night. So we got by. And there I go. It's just the hipsters again. Parachute. Jaffle shoots. Hooray. Yes, we have a slideshow showing how it all works at dinnerpartydownload.org. And heads up, I made the mistake of attempting a six-pack of beer a shoot and oh. ended up destroying Kai Ridsdahl's windshield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that explains why he fired a sheet cake at us at the American public media holiday party. Yeah, sorry about that, Rico. Great. Folks, coming up, <laughs> Mel Brooks tells us how to behave and Angelica Houston calls Brendan names. Two ends of the spectrum when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and we're in the midst of our Best of 2014 show. Coming up, Brendan's conversation with Angelica Houston. But first, this was a great year for etiquette. That's right. Each week, you send in your etiquette questions, which we pose to famous folks, mm-hmm. and we're going to play you a few of their best answers, starting with this one from Billy Eichner. He hosts the game show Billy on the Street, on which he accosts random pedestrians and demands they answer questions about pop culture. Oh, it's glorious. After he told (laughs) us about the time he argued with a homeless man about whether Glenn Close or Meryl Streep is the better actress, we posed him a question from a video editor named Scott. Scott wanted to know the polite way to tell his friends their digital TVs were set up incorrectly. The proper etiquette is get a life is the proper (laughs) etiquette. I'm so sick of people complaining. Oh, it's not an HD. Who are you? There are homeless people outside. Homeless people who love Glenn Close. And they don't have HD or SD. They don't have anything. They barely have a little... uh, My day, I had a portable, compact disc player. That was the only form of entertainment I had. So yeah. stop being so judgmental about people. But, but isn't, entertainment. isn't it, wouldn't Meryl Streep look better on HD, Billy? She <laughs> always looks great. She hasn't aged a day since Kramer versus Kramer. Just ask the people of New York. Scott. <laughs> going it's... over. To, if Scott came to my house and said, oh, don't you, can, you, can we watch a show in HD? No. No, you but, can't. But isn't it a simple way to make someone's life better? Look, with a touch of a button, I can make this look more pleasing to the eye. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, come on. Get out. You like, come over to my house. By the way, you're going to go over to someone's house and sit there and watch TV? Who are you, my <laughs> Uncle Lester? Scott, I just want you to know I would defend you more, but I'm a little afraid to do so How right boring. Now. Play a board game. Talk for five minutes. You're on your damn phone all day long, and then you're going to, oh, yeah, let's just throw all caution to the wind and watch some television. And he's a video editor, so he's already doing that at work. Like, well, get yeah. some exercise. But I'm sure Scott's a real looker, by the way. My <laughs> oh, word. All right. That was, that was the polite way to deal with things. There you go, Scott. This is, you're actually giving me a good idea because there, I've been getting a lot of... Um, 
people wanted me to write a book, seriously, <laughs> and you're giving me a good idea. I'll write an etiquette book. Oh, great. Well, give us a cut, okay? Yeah, I know. You guys always want every cent you can get here. <laughs> We've got it on Somehow tape. Terry Gross doesn't need my nickels and dimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Billy Eichner, he did indeed ink a book deal shortly after we aired that. We eagerly await our royalties. That's correct. And another guest who didn't take it easy on our listeners was actor and comedian Annabelle Gerwich. Oh, yes. Her book, I See You Made an Effort, was a bestseller last year. Here she is responding to a guy calling himself, quote, bow tie aficionado, who wanted to know how to politely tell people not to wear pre-tied bow ties. I think it's interesting that bow tie aficionado has managed to time travel from the past into the future and get a Twitter account because I didn't even know people knew how to tie bow ties. Okay, bow tie aficionado, man, get a life. I'm sorry, but I'm worried about this guy. Does he stop children on the street and say, no Velcro on shoes? You must tie those sneakers. I mean, it's not good. It's all bad. Don't do it. I also think how many people are wearing bow ties? that you want to now get down yeah. on the few people that oh. are bothering to wear something like a bow tie. I know, exactly. in a way, like you should, you should like... use that as a starting point to talk to them about, you know, how much more beautiful their tie could be if it was not pre-tied. What is he going to start saying, people, now, don't wear your later hosen below the knee, wear it above <laughs> the knee, sock suspenders. How about that? Does he wear sock suspenders? Where does it end, <laughs> bow tie aficionado? I'm, I'm worried. Annabelle Gerwich, bowtie aficionados everywhere can send her letters of protest via AnnabelleGerwich.com. <laughs> Moving on to Justin Simeon. He wrote and directed the film Dear White People. It was a hit at Sundance. It's about black kids trying to fit in at a mostly white college. He fielded a question from a guy named Chris. Chris writes, I have a friend who says y'all constantly and she isn't from the South. <laughs> what do you think? Is that okay? I am obsessed with this friend, whoever... Is it, it's she, right? So it's, it's a, a she. He's not from the South. That's good. I, I feel like I see this more and more often, just people saying y'all. I'm from the South, so I say y'all. Wait, doesn't it? It's a word that comes in handy, though. You guys is gender specific. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, that's specific. Not... So maybe it's just a shortcut. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, they put ketchup in their eggs in the South, too, and that was a good idea. It was. It is a good idea. Um, so maybe this is just a good idea. But it also depends on how she says it. Like, if it's a really awkward y'all and you know she's just forcing it, that is a bit irritating. Yeah. Like, hey, y'all. <laughs> Well, there are scenes in your movie where the characters at the all-white kind of privileged house are speaking (laughs) with one of the black characters, and they change their language, right? That is true. That's the worst, I have to say. Like, when when a well-intentioned, very liberal, nice white person comes up to me and is like, what's up, bro? And I know he does not greet other people like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Yeah. I, I get that you're trying to make me feel relaxed and comfortable in your presence. You're doing the opposite. But it's offensive and don't do that. <laughs> By the way, one other thing that you could do here is that Chris and Chapel Hill, you should start using the uh, Pittsburgh term. I'm from Pittsburgh. Okay. And the Pittsburgh version of y'all is yins. Yins? What? Yeah. No, no. Y-I-N-Z. No. Yep. I don't even understand the etymology of yins. Yeah, like, you, how does it yeah, get to be yins? I think it's you ones. I think it's what you say when you have beer in your mouth and a sandwich <laughs> in your mouth at the same time. Story of my life. Justin Simeon, Yuns can watch his film Dear White People on DVD in February. And finally, we wrap up this etiquette montage with something from Mel Brooks. Yeah. We posed him several etiquette questions, but the standout moment came when we asked him how he maintained a silly sense of humor, even in, for instance, the Vietnam era. I had a great mother, and she, she mm. infused me with what's kind of a joy and happiness, always whistling, always singing. I remember 
uh, when I was a little kid, I was only four or five years old, going to going to school. It was winter. My mother was a saint. She would put my my little clothes on the radiator. She dressed me under the covers so that I'd be warm when I popped out of bed. Oh and she was and she had Bing Crosby at some fifteen minute radio show every morning. Oh, Brown. Sweet Georgia. How could you not be happy? That sounds delightful. I don't know how she she survived without her husband, without without her man for all those years, never remarried and raised her kids. And and so I think she was the the heart and soul of of my joy, you know. And and then I was lucky enough to be married for 45 years to Anne Bancroft, oh, yeah. who was the same kind of person. I mean, yeah. you know, some crazy, fast, fat swaller, weird song would come on the radio and Anne would break into a dance. Uh-huh. I mean, <laughs> just like my mother. It was just, it was, you know, I, I had two of the greatest women there you go. In, in the world. So I, I have... That's the reason for my joie de vivre, my joy. Did she also dress you in bed, Mel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, oh, she did. Great. She did, and 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 undressed me. <laughs> the great Mel Brooks demonstrating some very gentlemanly behavior. Yes. Probably our favorite etiquette guest of the year. That's right. By the way, day after that interview, Mel had his palm prints immortalized in the cement outside the mm. Chinese theater in L.A. And he wore a special prosthetic so that one of those palm prints looked like it has six fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down, the best palm prints ever. Oh, my. Folks, if you have etiquette issues, email them to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. No gal made has got a shade on sweet Georgia brown. Two left feet, but oh so neat. And now, on to one of our best interviews of the year, as voted upon by you, our listeners. Yes, and it's actor Angelica Houston. Her work in films like Crimes and Misdemeanors and The Grifters made her one of the most beloved actresses in Hollywood. She won an Oscar for her role in Prizzy's Honor, which was directed by her father, the late great John Houston. And this year, she released the second volume of her memoir... It's called Watch Me, and though it was a critical success, a lot of the press seemed to concentrate on her 17-year on-again, off-again romance with Jack Nicholson. Right. When we met, I asked if that bothered her. Yeah, they, they seem to be pretty fixated on it. And, you know, they're, that's, they're not to be blamed for that. He's a very famous man, and, and I think people are, are very interested in him. Well, one of the things that has caused a lot of buzz is that in your memoir, you get the sense that he wasn't necessarily the greatest person to be in a relationship with. Well, it's he was... not fair to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, he, he is who he is. And actually, yes, he was a great person to have a relationship. He's funny. He's attractive. He has um, a lot of um, wonderful traits and, and characteristics. Fidelity wasn't one of them. But mm. you can't have everything, I don't think. And... Um, I really don't judge him on that. Well, I have to say that while reading this part of your book about your relationships with Jack and and Ryan O'Neill, I had that old feeling from like junior high school, you know, the the kind of artistically inclined asthmatic kid who was like, why do all the beautiful, cool girls like bad guys? And I mean, bad boys, not evil. Oh, you're a bad boy. You know you are. Perhaps. I bet you are. <laughs> Maybe a little bit now, you, but not when I was younger. Really not? Yeah. Just because I have a Band-Aid on my eye, I look like a bad Did boy. Did you right get now. in the scrap? <laughs> I didn't. I With my dermatologist. Uh, the worst kind. <laughs> I know. But what is it that makes those sorts of relationships attractive? Because, you know, people who tell us, no, it's 
It's primal, isn't it? Someone says no and you want it. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of how I operated for a while. You said no, I said why not? Yeah. So I, I'm happy to say that's no longer part of my repertoire. So at one point, you left your relationship with Jack and you were dating the actor Ryan O'Neill. It started because he saw you at a party and made a pass at you. And you write, quote, I should have known I was playing with fire but I was just self-centered and egotistical and needy enough to follow up with him. And I thought this was interesting because at this point, you don't have an acting career yet. What was the basis uh, of your ego and, and your self-centeredness? Like, where did that come from? I've always been egotistical. I'm at the center <laughs> of my world. <laughs> and if I weren't, I'd be in trouble, I think. Um, it's it's one of the things that sort of held me to the earth. Is that a strategy you think you had to adopt? I mean, growing up with no, a father? No, it's not was, a strategy. It's yeah. just pure selfishness. I think I probably learned it at home. My family were, no one was that much of a shrinking violet in I've my heard. family. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard. And it we seems we like, all knew how to assert ourselves. Yeah, your father, John Houston, was not known for being passive. So this book covers your time in Hollywood. And of course, you met with great success. In 1985, you won an Academy Award for Pritzi's Honor. Uh, you were in Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, The Grifters, The Adams Family, and so on. Before you arrived in California, you had been a model. So where did you learn how to act? Well, I had very artistic parents. And my father, of course, was, I think, also a, a wonderful actor as well as being a, a great director. My grandfather, Walter, was an actor. So I'm third generation. Yeah. And, and I just grew up that way. I grew up enacting scenes in the mirror and dressing up out of the dress-up hamper. And I loved movie stars. I, I particularly loved Sophia Loren. That idea that you could be a sort of beautiful, exalted actress, that was, for me, profoundly to be wished. I thought that was really great. And as I mentioned before, you've worked with some of the best directors. You've worked with Francis Ford Coppola, not so long ago, Wes Anderson, and a couple of his films. What directing style works best for you? I like um, a director who trusts his actors or her actors. I like a director who will allow you to walk through a scene and see how you feel about it and where you want to be in the scene. I was I was speaking to an actress uh, yesterday who was talking, and she's on a television show, and she was saying that when she gets there in the morning, there are all white tapes on the floor where she's supposed to wind up in the scene. For me, that would be very, very difficult. I yeah. like to find my way in a scene. So your memoir ends with you talking about your experience working on the NBC show Smash. When you were offered the part, it wasn't too long after you'd lost your husband, the sculptor Robert Graham, um, and you were nervous about moving to New York. So you went to speak to legendary Hollywood agent Sue Mengers. She's like in a haze of marijuana smoke. Yeah, I was feeling very trepidatious, and I, I love Sue. She was something of an oracle to me, and, and she'd been everyone's agent except mine, actually. <laughs> and uh, I went to see Sue, and it was after I'd done the pilot for Smash, and it looked like it was going ahead. And I was still very nervous about moving to New York and my dogs and... Oh, la, la. Anyway, I said, Sue, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, it means I'm going to have to leave home, and this part is wonderful, but it's... And she gave me a long, appraising look, and she said, it's a miracle. <laughs> 
Uh, and I guess it was. The first year on Smash was really great. But is part of that, the miracle part of that also, when you get to a certain age in Hollywood, is often difficult to find work? Or is that what she was getting at? Or what, what? I think so. Um, and also, you know, let's face it. There are no parts for women in Hollywood. Forget a, a woman of a certain age. Mm. I, you know, I see more women with nothing to say on film than I've ever seen before. I remember going to a woman in film... Uh, gala maybe in the 80s yeah and all the women there were talking about you know how wonderful it was and what great gains they'd made in the industry and so forth i think it's just the reverse i think women have been completely forgotten by this industry Hmm. um i just saw a wonderful movie the other day fox catcher but mm-hmm. Vanessa Redgrave and Sienna Miller are both in this movie, and I think between them they have three lines. Yeah. It's a pretty sad state of affairs for the girls out there. I wish I had a movie to cast you in immediately. Um, <laughs> I so- wish you did, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk after this. Um, I just have our two standard questions to offer you, but since you've been here before, you've answered them already. And yet, I want to ask at least one of them to you again. What were they, and what did I say? So I only remember your answer to the second question. So the second question was, tell us something we don't know, something oh, you've never that. talked about I before. I remember what I said. Yes. Still my favorite. I still blush thinking about it, but still one of my favorite answers. Yeah. Still the same way. <laughs> so you said that you had a, quote, penchant for green underwear. I do, yeah. which I got from Peter O'Toole, who never went left the house without his green socks on. And I feel that it's very lucky. I won't get on a plane without my green underwear on. You don't like to fly. That's also something I don't like to fly. Mm. Although I'm better at it. I'm Mm -hmm. touching wood. Mm -hmm. I like these new pods that they're putting um, on the the local flights. They go flat. They're wonderful. I can't sleep. There is a thing that you wouldn't know. Okay. I can't sleep if my feet are below my head. You need to be yes. perfectly horizontal. Exactly. What about the other way? Could you could your feet be above your Never head? Never tried it. Okay. That means space. Not, not I don't think space is for me, actually. <laughs> Angelica Houston, the second volume of her memoir is called Watch Me. And folks, that just about concludes this look back at our best stuff of 2014. Yes, just one moment remains for us to share with you. The time we went stargazing with Bill Nye the Science Guy. Ah, yes. This was for a special episode. We had designed it to be listened to outdoors at night under the summer stars. So long ago. Yes, when it was warm. As crickets chirped, Bill told us where in space mankind is most likely to find life and why we should send people to find it. The reason you'd want to... um send people to Mars or Europa, it's been estimated that what our very best rover can do in a week, a geologist, a human, can do in about a minute. (laughs) So if you had a human there, you just get things done a lot more quickly. But getting a human there and getting him or her back is a lot of messing around. But wait a second. So would you want to go there right now? Yeah. But I mean, not by myself. I'd want a spaceship. Well, Rico and I could join you. Oh, cool. Yeah, because Carl Sagan had his spaceship of the imagination, you know? I know, yes. We, we had this audio rocket. It's right over here. So you want to go? Yes. You can bring your wine. Great. Jackson. Jackson's our associate producer. Yeah, ja- you need something? Yeah, fire up the audio rocket. Okay. Do you want to do the honors? You can just press the button right here that says space. Enjoy the rest of the evening. Bill and 
Nanai, the science guy, and Rico. I just want to make sure our lawyers are okay with us airing listen, that clip. I know we got in a lot listen, of trouble. We asked Bill if he wanted to come back to Earth with us. He elected to stay on Europa. We're not his mom. <laughs> All right. That's well, how there goes. you have it. <laughs> Good. All right. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we leave 2015 behind and blast off into the new year. Yay. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. Till then, you can keep up with us 24-7 all year long on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker produces the show. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Our interns are Christiana Cabal and Ed Morales. Phil Richards and Jeff Peters engineered. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks this week to Megan Ellingbo. Bon appétit. Thank you.